Hello and welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. This is Jacob Feldman with you again. I'm very excited for today's episode. We got a great guest. Anne Helen Peterson is a senior writer at BuzzFeed News, where she covers culture, celebrity, politics, and the West. Before joining BuzzFeed, her work appeared um, across a slew of internet publications. An Idaho native, she has a PhD in media studies from the University of Texas and is the author of two books, one on Hollywood scandals and another on contemporary female celebrity. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure that we finally made this work. Yes, absolutely. You've been featured uh, a number of times in our newsletter over uh, the last four years, I guess. So uh, we, we've been talking for a while, and, and, and it's an absolute pleasure uh, to have this chat. So I, I think maybe let, let's start a little bit with, with that introduction of yours, Culture, Celebrity, Politics, and the West. It's an eclectic uh, collection of topics, I think some people might think at first. So I'm curious how you describe your job and, and, and how those topics kind of all came into uh, what you cover? Yeah, I think, you know, I mostly think of myself as a cultural reporter, which is my technically my job. Uh, like that is my job description as culture writer. And so many things can fall under culture, right? Like politics is culture. Celebrity is culture. The West is culture. Like all of these things. It's almost a, a designation so broad that it becomes meaningless. But in terms of trying to think about how I approach all of those topics. Like that's the prism through which I approach following Beto O'Rourke around or doing a celebrity profile or talking about the Bundys in the West. So for me, it makes sense. And it also really mirrors my identity. So I, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit, but I did not have any journalistic training. I really was going to be a, a professor and an academic, and my research was all in the history of celebrity. So that was a natural interest and part of the way that I got hired in the first place at BuzzFeed. But then as I have expanded and basically like learned how to become a journalist, <laughs> yeah. it naturally has expanded the number of things that I cover to include the things that interest me and that includes the places that I'm from uh, and politics and television and all sorts of things. <laughs> so what was it something that you hoped uh, you know to expand your realm beyond celebrity w w when you started at BuzzFeed or is it something that happened naturally or accidentally or? Oh, I didn't want to expand at all. I was uh -huh. terrified of that. Really? I, you know, like a lot of people in the late 2000s and early 2010s, I had written a lot of personal essays on the internet. Um, during, I would consider the height of the personal essay economy when you would get paid either nothing or fifty to a hundred dollars to to write a personal essay. So I had, I had been writing some things about my life, not confessional so much as just. You know, every person has about a dozen personal essays in them, whether or not they want to come out or not. And I, I checked a bunch of those off to to make a little extra cash while I was a, a professor and an academic. Uh, and but other than that, the only thing that I wanted to write about was celebrity. And I especially didn't want to do something as terrifying as report, because you know, in academia, you don't really. It depends on your on where you are in the discipline but um, my reporting had consisted of like doing so much reading and consulting primary documents and going into archives but no talking to actual people <laughs> and that was like really really terrifying for me and the first time was about i think three months into my tenure at buzzfeed 
it was when actually a bunch of the TMZ sports and football stories started breaking. And like an email went around. This is when you like whenever something interesting happened. This is pre-Slack. Someone sent an email that was like, ah, TMZ is doing some pretty interesting things. I think like Jonah Peretti responded. You know, this was like, again, BuzzFeed was small and these emails went to everyone. And then I wrote back, like it's so typical academic being like, well, actually in my dissertation, I wrote about, I, I didn't use the word dissertation, but I was like, oh yeah, they've been doing this interesting stuff. Like this is how they do this. And I knew all of this because I had written a chapter about TMZ in my dissertation. And they were like, okay, you're writing something about it. And so I had to take all of the stuff that I already knew, like that I had done research on about TMZ stuff that people had written in the trade press in like advertising age and that sort of thing. And then my editor at the time, Steve Kandel, who's a features editor, he was like, now you need to go to LA and you need to find people who used to work for TMZ and you need to interview them. And that was just, it was truly the most difficult reporting trip of my life. Not because it was that difficult to find people who used to work for TMZ and interview them because you know, people who used to work for TMZ have a lot to say. Right, probably comfortable (laughs) sharing some stuff, right? But I, like, on the fly had to learn what's the difference between on background, off the record, on the record, right? If someone tells me this story, how do I substantiate it so that I can include it in the story, not by quoting them, but just, like, using that anecdote? Um, All of that sort of thing. And also just talking to people, which even though you and I are talking on a podcast right now, and I also used to teach in front of people, like it is just an incredibly terrifying, difficult thing for me. And every time I do it, I feel like I'm going to throw up a little bit. That's fascinating. And so it's been the same since you started? Yeah, although part of the reason I moved to the West was because I, this is about four years into my time at BuzzFeed, maybe a little bit less, but I went out to cover, there was a special election in Montana for Zinke's seat, who he had been appointed to become Secretary of the Interior. And this is when like special elections were seen as this way to test, you know, like, oh, is like the Trump backlash, like can the Democrats actually ever win anything? And so I went out to Montana and just drove around for a week um, all over the state, just like talked to people. I was like, why am I so happy? And it was because it was because it was really easy to report. Um, it's because I could blend in and I could talk to people, and they would talk to me because I was from Idaho and you know had just some had basically clearance to to do that sort of reporting. And so I was like, oh well, if I'm good at this and it doesn't make me nauseous, then maybe I should do more of it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's how I convinced. BuzzFeed to let me move to Montana. While we're talking about reporting, we can talk about um, this most recent newsletter that you wrote about about uh, the clothes you wear while, while you're reporting. It's you know it's it's a reckoning a reckoning with with recognition and it's, it's you know cloaked in an essay about clothes. I guess tell me about that evolution in terms of the way you're thinking about uh, preparing for a reporting trip, whether it's just a day trip or, or um, an, an overnight adventure, um, and how that's kind of evolved and the way you think about presenting yourself. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different genres of reporters. Like some reporters really do like to be conspicuous and like to make people uncomfortable. And oftentimes those reporters are men or white men specifically who can get away with, you know, making people uncomfortable and not feeling like something bad is going to happen. But 
that and some reporters like I think of my editor-in-chief here at BuzzFeed, he just doesn't flinch. Like he likes saying things that make people stutter and, and, and feel weird. And he oftentimes gets really great stuff out of, out of reporting that way. Um, and I think that other reporters, and it's, it spreads the gamut, it spreads beats, uh, but there are people who have long in their lives felt like they always want to fit in and they want people to feel comfortable with them and they want to feel comfortable. And so my whole entire life, I have tried to fit in. Like I was obsessed with being popular when I was in junior high and high school and I never quite was, but I was never unpopular, right? But I was always so conscious of like, what clothes can I wear to fit in? Not to become invisible, right? But just to, to fit in and not be conspicuous. And I think that as a reporter, and I write this in the newsletter, my goal is not to like trick people, right? Like I don't want to, when I'm reporting at a Trump rally, I'm not going to wear a MAGA hat because that's disingenuous in terms of, you know, I'm trying to be there as a, as a more neutral observer. I mean, there's no such thing as a neutral observer, but a more neutral observer. And, but I also don't want to like pound people over the head with my difference. So I'm not going to show up looking like I'm walking out of a Brooklyn apartment to a rally outside of Cincinnati. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Absolutely. Um, and so I find that there are things obviously that I can control about my appearance, which includes being a white woman who uh, reads as like feminine and cis normative and all those things. And then, and I have blonde hair and I smile a lot. I like, I say in the piece that I set my face in the opposite of <laughs> resting bitch face. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, but then for my clothes, like it really is a matter of uh, trying not to wear brands that necessarily show a certain class level or connote a certain style of lifestyle. So even like in the West, there are places where you wear Patagonia mm -hmm. and that makes you fit in. And mm -hmm. then there are other places where wearing Patagonia makes you stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I try to be conscious of that. And uh, like boots, I wear boots all the time. That's just kind of like, I love wearing boots that are kind of cowboy style. And the, like I went to a Bundy event and this guy told me, he was like, I can always tell the reporters at these things, you know, they're, they're doing a good job to blend in, but you guys are always the ones wearing boots that aren't shined. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that to me, that's just perfect, right? Because like reporters don't care about that. That's not a particular element of going out in a public space that we necessarily worry about. But for someone who's an actual like rancher or farmer, you know, that is part of dressing to go out to a public thing is you you shine your boots. Um, whereas mine are like artfully scuffed <laughs> and came that way. Yeah. But yeah, that's just, there's so many things. And I think men and women make these decisions subconsciously all the time. But I think being more transparent about the ones that we are being like are conscious about making makes it easier to, to pass those tips down. Yeah. And it, it, it's, uh, well, absolutely. I, I mean, I notice this, you know, every time I'm packing for a trip, like the way I choose my outfit for each day is thinking who I might run into or, or um, 
what it might look like. And I remember, you know, early in, in, in my career, like wearing a suit to a lot of meetings uh, <laughs> with sources and then them saying, oh, you shouldn't have gotten dressed up. And me like instinctually saying, oh, I'm not dressed up for you. I just have something else or, you know, yeah. um, it, it's totally yeah, like totally. part of the process. <laughs> totally. And But it's interesting. So you you, you write this essay and you're describing all, all of these, you know, tips you've picked up along the way and the, the ways you've learned to mediate these spaces. And then you get to the end um, and, and it feels like there's some more, reflection there and you say uh, you know it's getting harder in a lot of ways to balance you know the the, the innate desire you have for, for self-preservation I think is the word you use to balance that with your professional duty and and um, you write sometimes I wonder how much better my reporting could be if I had the gumption to be a problem so uh, you know I'm, I'm curious if you see do you see you know I, I think this is something I definitely share too but that innate desire for self-preservation is that a barrier or or do you see um, these is as more two different, you know, styles of journalism, the more fitting in observer style and the more, uh, go in and be a problem style. I, I think that both types, each type comes naturally to, to a certain type of person. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that I love about my job as a reporter is that I am constantly able to pick topics that challenge me. Like I can run towards the thing that scares me. Um, and that makes me a better writer, it makes me a better thinker, it makes me a better citizen in the world, all sorts of things. But uh, I, so that's why I think for me, I am good at blending in. That is the thing that comes naturally. So the thing where mm -hmm. I need to push myself is to ask those harder questions. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, every reporter hates listening to themselves <laughs> on the transcription, you know? Sure. Um, and part of what I hate is the part in an interview when I ask a question and the person answers and maybe doesn't have a lot to say. And then I fill the space <laughs> right, <absolutely. laughs> with like trying to like make it more comfortable mm -hmm. when if I would have let that beat sit right there and been uncomfortable with that space, the other person would have said something interesting, right? Yeah. So that's the place where I need to like be more okay with that uncomfortable moment. For people like you, including myself, what what uh, tools or advice do you have for for finding that way to to be quiet or to ask the tough question when, when it's warranted? Uh, I haven't found a ton because one of the things about reporting is that it is a very solitary thing. Absolutely, right? like no one else is. I don't get to watch other people reporting very mm -hmm. often. Right, the performance review doesn't include you know them listening to your interview tapes. Yeah, for better or worse. <laughs> although, although, so this is why. I just watched the Elizabeth Holmes documentary. Yeah. And you get to hear the tapes of the, some of the journalists who wrote feature profiles of her. Mm -hmm. And it's the best part of the documentary. Like the documentary is pretty middling, but I would watch <laughs> it all over again just to hear those tapes because yeah. it gives you an example of like, oh, if you are a senior feature reporter for The New Yorker, here's how you ask questions. Mm -hmm. Right? And even like they, one of the tapes starts with like, I'm here with an answer, it's like the name of the person, Elizabeth Holmes. Everything that is said is on the record unless dictated otherwise. Like uh -huh. that is so authoritative <laughs> and would would be so helpful to have that incredible declaration at the beginning. But then with some of the people that I talk to, I am trying so hard just to convince them to speak with me in the first place. That to have the the apparatuses of reporting there. So whether it's a tape recorder 
a visible tape recorder, you know, or like on the table or a declaration like that, mm -hmm. that is so intimidating that it makes Absolutely. people shut down. Right. So Especially you have when to, it's an, a quote unquote normal person that you're, you're interviewing, right? Yeah. Not a CEO, right? right. Who has dealt with this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you have to roll with the punches. Yeah. I don't know if you listen uh, to the New York Times daily podcast, but I don't listen every day, but the ones sometimes they'll do, they'll have like Q and A's. I remember with Lindsey Graham recently um where they just it seems like they're just playing the rec the recording that they did for for a newspaper interview and it has um you know, some of those same elements that, that i find personally yeah uh, no useful. i listened to that lindsey graham one too yeah. and it was i love it when they do that yeah. yeah and you know i think that there was a piece recently where someone wrote about like you know what's the purpose of all of these behind the scenes journalistic pieces and the piece itself was very cynical in that it says that like, oh, the reason why the Times is so good at this, for example, is that part of the application for the Pulitzer and the kind of the, the outline for how you win a Pulitzer is to do stories like that, uh -huh, which yeah. sure, yeah, like the New York Times really likes to win Pulitzers. <laughs> but at the same time, I know that like with when I write my pieces, I'm not trying to win a Pulitzer. And I also... I mean, maybe people think of it as navel gazing, but I find listening to other people talk about how they do their job, no matter what that job is, like whether that job is picking up trash or wildlife biology or a hair cutter, you know, like all of those things are so interesting to actually get into the nitty gritty of what their day looks like, what their decision making process, what their scheduling looks like. And one of my most popular newsletters is just like, how I pack for my reporting trips. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, let's take a step back and, and I want to ask about the newsletter generally. So uh, in my mind, it's the collected op. I don't know, do you, do you say AHP in your mind? Or? <laughs> op, no, I say AHP. Okay, cool. <laughs> I like collected op though, that's yeah. good. Uh, I don't know if it's like an op-ed like yeah. uh, riff, but uh, I've got this whole headcanon about it. But anyway, so the collected AHP, um, which, what, what, what's the website we should send people for that? It's Substack. It's annhelen.substack.com. Or do, yeah, yeah, that'll perfect. Take you and there. and they can probably find it through your Twitter or, um, mm -hmm. and, and elsewhere, and we'll we'll have a link to it too. But um, de definitely highly recommend subscribing to that. And like you mentioned, you, you you get into a lot of kind of the behind the scenes and reporting, and also just uh, your week to week. There's, there's reflections um, on the news some weeks. It's it's it, it, it's a great collection of of your thoughts, I imagine. So. Uh, you know, but it, it, I'm curious how that how you balance that with this, uh, you know, wanting to fit in and, and what it's been like as you've kind of taken this more personal turn in, in your writing for BuzzFeed and also for this newsletter and kind of where that comes from. Oh, I think it's just like overflow. I have always been someone who likes to write in the first person. You know, I took creative writing classes in college and I like I was a huge, this dates me a little bit, but I loved writing letters to people yeah. when I was in junior high and high school. Uh -huh. um, a lot of these people were like friends from camp or like when I was at camp, I wrote people. When I was in college, like wrote to friends and all sorts of things. Um, but so that first person style is not something that is, that is foreign. And I think that I... It's actually, as I've gotten more journalistic in my writing at BuzzFeed and more like consider myself a journalist, there's not always a place for that at you know BuzzFeedNews.com. So that impulse wants to go somewhere. And for me, I find it very fun to write 
blog style, which is what newsletters are. They're just like blogs that come to your inbox um, about whatever I'm thinking about. And sometimes what I'm thinking about is like something about my work, kind of a meta commentary on how I'm doing my work. And or like I think it's interesting and other people find it interesting how I assembled a piece, like how I did the research for a piece. Um, and but then sometimes it's also just like a little bit of media criticism. There's not a ton of space for that per se in my lane at BuzzFeed. So like I remember last year when the New York Times Marine Dowd profile of, of Uma Thurman came out, I just, there was something about the way that it was framed that was really off to me. And I was like, oh, what, why does this feel off to me? And I went through it, not in like the really the way that we would write something for publication on a website, but more in that bloggy thing where you're like, huh, and what's going on with this sentence? Like it's more of a conversation. And so that, that's just one of the ways that I use it. Yeah, absolutely. And you've talked about making, not making money off this project, doing it strictly as a hobby. And, and what has been the thinking there? Yeah, Substack has tried to get me to monetize it. There's a lot of people who do that successfully. Uh, and for me, if I'm, turn it into something that I'm asking people to pay for, then I need to put in the labor to make it something that's worthy of, of that price. And so that would include things like proofreading it more than one time, <laughs> you know, like, sure. and I, it is, it's something that I do 100% on my own time and uh, that I don't want to, I already spend, you know, like, it's not something that I write in half an hour. Like it takes me a while to, to do it. And also I always collect links at the bottom. And, and so yeah, it takes no, me it's, it's, like it's two good. or three it's hours. Really good, yeah. <laughs> so it would take me even longer. And I'm trying to also not, I'm trying not to work all the time on the weekends. And so that is one way that I preserve at least sometimes on my, on my Sunday to, to not doing all work is by being like, okay, I'm going to dash this thing out in a few hours. Like usually I wake up on Sunday morning and do it and then have the rest of my day to do whatever I want to do. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I like the idea of, of, of telling yourself you're not working on the weekend by just not, not calling it work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so let's, let's talking about work on the weekend. I'll, I'll, I'll transition right from there. segue right from there into this, this burnout conversation that, uh, that you sparked, uh, to, to keep with the burning theme earlier this year, uh, with an essay in Boston. And I'm just curious, first off, you know, how that went from something you were, I'm sure you were thinking about personally, maybe talking with friends, how that went from that stage to something that you wanted to report out and, and, and turn into a lengthy essay for BuzzFeed. You know, I really, like it started with me just being so frustrated with myself that there were these things on my to-do list that just kept cycling through. Like they just kept rolling over to the next week and to the next week. And I couldn't figure it out. And I was like, is this Aaron paralysis? And I remember I asked in Slack, I was like, I think I have this thing called Aaron paralysis. I want to write about it. And one of my editors was like, I love doing errands. I don't think this is a thing. <laughs> and what it is, is that it's not one particular type of Aaron. Everyone's Aaron paralysis is different because everyone has different things that are high effort, low reward. Um, and so as I started to think just about that a little bit. I also was like pretty burnt out in hindsight <laughs> and, and feeling very floundery post midterm elections because 
as culture, we had a little bit of a mandate to like, okay, midterms are over so we can turn away from politics for a little bit. And I had been so deeply enmeshed in politics that I was like, what does this look like for me? (laughs) And I really, I felt this like, what kind of writer am I going to be now if I'm not writing about these things? Um, And really that was a symptom of, of my burnout was not being able to articulate why I was feeling so uh, rootless. And as I read more and more about this like little idea of Aaron paralysis, it became incredibly clear that I had burnout. <laughs> like I really, cause I kept trying to look at things like asking people for reading recommendations and they all led back to this, this larger idea. And so I basically diagnosed myself. And once I had that framework in place and also started thinking about it, Really, not just in terms of, you know, as I articulate in the piece, not like the classic vision of burnout, which is I always think of in terms of reporting as like a political reporter who, you know, is on the road every single day. And then after the election is like goes to an island and is alone for a month and then can return to work. It's not always like that. But after I figured it out that that's what was going on and that it was all to do with, you know, also precarity and also social media and also my student loans and that sort of thing, that I took that framework and I laid it down on my life, particularly on my history, um, both as growing up and then as a high schooler and in college and in academia and, and into journalism. And that became you know, a life is long. So that's why it ended up being like 8,000 words. The first draft was 11,000 words. Wow. So I'm glad that I cut as much as I did. And, and was there a conversation w- w- with editors about how much your story was going to be part of this story? Um, yeah, I think that they knew that I was going to be part of it, mm-hmm. but that it was going to be a broader piece. Yeah. I don't always have a clear picture of what my piece is going to be when I start writing. One of the, I think, privileges of being a more senior writer is that you can start with a little bit. Your editors trust you to be able to start without having a very clear vision of where you're going. <laughs> you can or you can arrive there more organically. And so I thought that the piece was going to be like, oh, like 3,000 words. And then as I was going, I would update them on Slack and be like, uh, this is still going, but I think it's going to be good. Uh, and then finally like filed it right after Christmas. And then it was actually, I thought it was going to take a lot longer to do edits and it came together pretty quickly and came out about a week, a week and a half after I had filed it. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. And, and, and like you're saying, I mean, it touches on so many different topics, but, but manages to stay cohesive one of the things that struck me most and you mentioned this a little bit but just the the way of of, of defining burnout of, of talking about it of recognizing it uh you know it it, it takes on this, this kind of villainous character in the story you talk about burnout following us home home and back and mm-hmm. uh catching you and it, it's it's very active um and i think i guess i i probably maybe like other people went into the story thinking about burnout as something you know that you do to yourself you know something that is is um more internal than than external i guess I, i'm curious mm-hmm. how you how you think about that as, uh, you know, personal failure versus another thing you use, word you use is, is disease, um, as, as a chronic disease and, and something that's more external. How, how do you kind of think about the balance of those two, both when it comes to what causes it and um, how to deal with it, internal versus external? Well, I, I think using like the metaphor of a disease is, a, is fitting in some ways because 
I do think that it is contagious. Because to me, burnout, it's like, you know, you can call it burnout culture too. It's an ideology, which is that, and I articulate this in the piece, one that I internalized specifically during grad school, which is that everything good is bad. Everything bad is good. Yeah, absolutely. Which is that when you are doing the things that previously gave you joy, (laughs) you know, whatever that might be, you conceive of it as bad because it is time that you could be working. And then when you are doing work, you conceive of that as good, no matter if you have been working for 14 hours or if you are working for the, you know, 13th day straight, you still, it is good because you are working. Um, And I think that that ideology, that's something that pervades everywhere and that you, it's hard to get outside of. Truly, it is hard to get outside of that ideology, especially if you are working in a creative industry or if you are working in a city, especially on the coast. You know, like I, so I live in Missoula and some people are like, you know, shouldn't you have like avoided burnout when you moved to a smaller, much smaller town? I moved from Brooklyn to to Missoula. And the thing is, is that the vast majority of people in Missoula have avoided burnout culture. Like there's this saying in town that like people don't move to Missoula to work. You know, like you do not move. Like there's a lawyer who transferred from Seattle to Missoula and now he, he works like four hour days because he's doing the same amount of work. But you have all these other things in your life that like, you know, whether it's family or sports or just being outside, that those are the reasons why you're living. You don't live to work. You know, you work to live. And I moved to Missoula and part of that rubbed off on me. But then the other thing that happened was that because I wasn't doing things like spending two hours a day on the train, I was like, oh, these are two more hours that I could work. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like I actually, and also because I wanted to prove. Yeah, you have I to could, justify that you can, you know, still be productive out there. Exactly. Right, over justify it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I was traveling more just because, I mean, I would have traveled probably the same amount, but just the, the character that my job took on leading up to the midterms required more travel. And that means that on your weekends, you're not just working, you're not just sitting at home like writing, you are spending the entire weekend devoted to reporting and driving to your next reporting place and flying and writing while you're flying and those sorts of things, which really can lead you to that, to that ideology. But going back to your original question, I think that um, thinking of it more as like a mindset, whether you use the term ideology or culture or all those things, then it's easier to think about how it becomes something that becomes the de facto way of relating to work in your workplace, in your generation, in your city, whatever. What, what, how did the reaction to that story compare to, to, to what you expected or how did you experience the, the, <laughs> the, the reaction and the conversation that, that ballooned out of it? I thought it would be like a mild hit. Like I thought <laughs> it would be like a couple 10,000 people responding because personal essays often do okay, but they, they rarely go super viral. Like there has to be something bigger. And so I think really that there had been so much 
leading up to this point, you know, it's one of those things oftentimes when something like this goes incredibly viral, it's because other people have been talking about it. Like it's been in the water. It's just that no one has called. Mm-hmm. No one has like has put it all together. Yeah, put it all together and given it a name. And so that is why it did so well. And I think it was, there were many other people who could, could have written a similar essay and articulated that thing. I just happened to do it first. And, and has that experience changed the things you want to write about going forward? Yeah, you know, I often kind of follow the lead of something that I've written about to be like, oh, well, this is something that I'm interested in at this moment. So yeah, I, you know, the follow-up piece to it was another big feature on what people don't understand about student loans, essentially. It was started as me talking about the brokenness of the student loan forgiveness program, and that expanded into a much larger piece that was about just the history of how we've conceived of student debt and who should pay for college in the country. And like the the burnout piece, it's, it, I think, touched a lot of people who felt like they were very alone in the way that they were thinking about these things. So like student loans are a huge part of burnout and why people are experiencing burnout. But the reason why student loans are so, create such burnout, that's a, that's a larger question that hadn't really been spelled out in an in-depth way. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think the, this, this kind of personal essay, there's that personal essay that you're describing, that's also, you know, much larger than that. And, and this idea of writing something that, that helps people uh, feel seen, I guess would, would maybe be the easiest way to describe it is, I don't know if there's a long tradition of that before the internet or and, and before, um, you know, the, the style of essays, it's something, you know, helping, helping people understand themselves or, or, or recognize that other people are going through the same things. Is that something in particular that, that you uh, enjoy or are passionate about outside of going somewhere and reporting on an event and, and explaining something? Yeah, I think that for a long time, there are just groups of people who haven't had that privilege of having someone be able to articulate a feeling that that makes them feel seen, right? And even though the experience that was articulated in the burnout piece was very much mine of a, an upper middle class, like bourgeois, educated, white, straight woman, um, I do. There were a lot of people who connected to it in an overarching form. And then, you know, we've had a lot of follow-up pieces, some that I collected, some that other people wrote that was talking about the specifics of how, like, burnout looks in their life, right? So what does it look like to be a disabled person and deal with all of these other things, right? What does it look like to be a Black woman and dealing with all of these things? And that creates another set of identification. It's like trickle-down identification. And the more of that, I think the better. And you're right, there hasn't been a long tradition of the style of first person, I feel seen connecting writing that, you know, there have been essays in women's magazines for, you know, very, very long time. Um, There have been different forms, obviously, of women's writing and personal essay writing. But I think that that urge to connect is closely associated with um, how we connect with each other on social media, how we seek connection via online sources. Yeah, it's kind of like these conversations that, you know, we probably should be having more 
face to face with our friends, right? The internet is, is picking up some of that load. Right. But I do sometimes it, the, you know, an article on the internet can really spark those conversations. So <laughs> sure. I cannot tell you how many people told me that they sent the article to their therapist and then <laughs> had like a long conversation with their therapist mm-hmm. or, you know, it sparked a really long conversation with their partner about their priorities in their relationship or they sent it to their mom so that they could have a long conversation about, you know, what they were misunderstanding about each other whenever they talked. So sometimes it's a tool to start those real life conversations. No, for sure. And, and, and it is different than the generational profile. You know, there's like that story in the New York Magazine about um, socialists in New York where someone kind of goes in and, and, and tries to write about this culture or, you know, historically, you know, Gatelis or whoever would, would go uh, and, and interrogate this culture and, and try to explain it. But uh, it is such a different experience reading it when it's from the inside, when it's mixed with that with that personal element, I think. Yeah, I think that, you know, what would happen if a boomer tried to write about burnout culture? Mm-hmm. Like, what right. would that be like? <laughs> and and I, do, I do think that being a late millennial gave me some perspective on the fact that, like, it wasn't always this way, right? Mm-hmm. Right, like, and you, you talk about it in the story, kind of the, the way your childhood was different than, than modern, quote-unquote, childhood, right? Yeah, and even how I saw it begun to switch, and I have the unique perspective of, going to a college, like a small liberal arts college, and then coming back to teach at that same college <laughs> Yeah. about, I think it was like 10 years later. So that allowed me to almost see like this next generation very clearly and micro generation and how things had changed just in those 10 years. And it was so stark to me. Do you feel a, a different mission or purpose in your writing when it's a broad sweeping generational profile versus a uh, individual profile we can you know talking about whether it's profiling Beto O'Rourke or, or whoever oh I think that I am like sometimes to a fault drawn to large sweeping ideological <laughs> statements uh-huh. <laughs> like and I think that that is my training as someone in media studies specifically but in cultural studies writ large which is let's look at these items of pop culture to think about these much larger ideological shifts and trends and how we're thinking about what it means to be a type of person in the world today, which again, those are like big, like big topics, but the way that we decipher those things, the way that like we excavate those things is by looking at, at pop culture. And so for me, looking at like, say the Beto O'Rourke campaign, like what does the incredible apparatus of support around him, which was like that profile you know, I only spent 30 minutes one-on-one with him. I was much less interested in that one-on-one time than I was with interviewing like every single supporter that I could get in contact with. And also talking with those people about the what the, how they felt about Beto, but also about how they felt about being a person who supports a Democrat or being a moderate in a place like Texas. Like that's the interesting question to me. That's the cultural question. So that energy funnels towards and is sparked by Beto, but it's not like he's he's not the topic. It's that energy that's the topic. And that's why it turns into these larger ideological statements. <laughs> and that's why, you know, you said at the beginning that we'd talk about Brie Larson. That's why I'm not as good at those sort of things because I can't make very big statements <laughs> about when I'm just profiling someone like Brie Larson. You don't, you don't, but now maybe if you went, I don't know if you are going to, if there is going to be a sequel, but if you went back and, and, and talked to her now, there's, there's a massive 
cultural question to ask around here, right? Yeah, and you know, she is an incredibly smart woman. She is an autodidact. She has read so much and thought really deeply about things, um, which is not something you always find with celebrities, frankly. Uh, she is a filmmaker and she is, uh, you know, she, she is just really complex. But at the same time, celebrities oftentimes give not that interesting answers. And because of the celebrity profile industrial complex, you usually only get an hour with them, you know? And unless you're like the New Yorker and you're profiling someone who is not a huge, like usually the New Yorker does not profile mega, mega, mega stars for something like Captain Marvel. Um, so when you have that little amount of access, it is harder to, to make those statements. But when I do do a piece that can make a big, bigger statement, it's almost always when I'm doing a write around. And that's because what I'm excavating is what had, you know, what did this star mean at a given time? What do they mean now? And you can't get that necessarily when you're interviewing and profiling the star. I'm curious, what your, what was your reaction when you found out that she would be doing this, this Captain Marvel movie? Um, I think that she wanted to test her limits. She is someone who is like, well, what's gonna, what would happen if I did this? You know? And if she hates it, then she'll go back to doing things that um, feel right to her. But that was my sense of her as a person. And, you know, whenever you profile someone, you read all of their interviews as well. So it's not just my experience of like the hour that I spent with her, but also all of those other answers to questions that she said. Uh, absolutely. And, and we're bouncing back and forth here, but, but I'll ask, I'll ask uh, about Beto. And I'll ask the same question. What, what was your reaction when you saw he was running for president? What, what cultural question do you feel like uh, are you interested in there? Well, I think that, to me, he is a candidate who set people on fire because he asked the question of what would it mean if a candidate cared about people who didn't live in big cities? What would it mean if a candidate was audacious enough to think that they could win as a Democrat in Texas? Um, and he activated that hope and made people feel seen. He made, like, I talked to so many Democrats and moderates, he said, you know, a candidate does not come here, has never come here, has never cared about us. And he makes me feel like my vote matters in a way that it hasn't. And that activates people not just to care and to, you know, donate money and to put a campaign sign in their lawn, but also just to vote. Like Texas has such a low voter turnout and a lot of it has to do with voter suppression tactics, but then equally as much has to do with people feeling like if I vote, it's not gonna change anything. Republicans are always gonna win here. So that to me was what was so interesting about him. And I don't know if that works outside of the Texas cultural context. And I've been fascinated to watch it. And I think that there is this real tension between like, oh, is how people, you know, like media people responding to Beto online, does that reflect real life? And Yes and no, right? Like, <laughs> I think that, you know, I tweeted the other day that you can have three things be true at once, which is that his rollout was sloppy and weird, uh, that he really makes people feel amazing when they see him in person, and he's incredibly charismatic in that way, um, 
And also, you know, given the huge fundraising numbers that he also cultivated a massive email list. So it's not that difficult for him to raise a ton of money. And I, the thing I hope as we continue through this election cycle is that we can, you know, it doesn't have to be like, oh, this person is the worst and this person is canceled like every day, right? Is that like, here are some interesting things that are happening that reflect things that are culturally happening. Like Beto is interesting because he, uh, you know, ran because people were excited about him during the midterms when there was so much energy, but also then how does he fit into this larger national conversation about what kind of Democrat can resonate? Like there's so many exciting and interesting conversations to have about this upcoming election. And there, like, it doesn't have to be toxic. Mm. How do you how, how do you feel about our uh, ability to have those cultural conversations? <laughs> well, obviously, Twitter is not the best place to have those because mm -hmm. people just willfully, I think, misread and um, misrepresent each other. But uh, I don't know. I, I there was so much good writing that came out of the midterms, so I hope that maybe we can have the same leading up to the actual presidential election too. Yeah, absolutely. Are, are you going to be diving back in, in into politics? Do you know yet? You know, I think that it, I will through the lens of celebrity. So like if I write about Beto, because we have like a politics reporter who is on the Beto beat, like who is that is her life, right? And so I think that like mine would be much more of like an image analysis kind of um, approach at this point. Yeah, awesome. Anything else uh, on your mind these days? What, what else is, is, is fascinating you? Well, I just got back from Waco mm -hmm. and I'm writing a story about that, <laughs> which is complex and like <laughs> involves sports and fixer upper and small town America and church and all sorts of things. So trying to figure out how to write that. Uh, I'm also my other next project is about um, millennial homeownership. So like making visible the ways that people actually buy homes. So whether that's, you know, your parents make the down payment or I moved to a small town where I can actually afford a down payment. Just like yeah. talking pretty frankly about how people make that work. Awesome, awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to both those. those. Those should both be great and um, hopefully we'll get a chance to, to, to call them both out in the newsletter when they do come out. Uh, thank you so much again uh, for joining me this afternoon. Uh, if you guys want to find uh, those stories and any more, uh, you can follow Anne at, Anne, at Anne Helen, A-N-N-E-H-E-L-E-N -E -E on Twitter, or you can obviously find her work on BuzzFeed News. Uh, thank you to our producer, Peter Bailey-Wells. Wouldn't be an episode without him, uh, his work this week. And thank you guys all again for listening. You can learn more about the newsletter and the podcast at sundaylongread.com. Otherwise, until then, thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.